Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today I'm here with JC Fisher. We're going to do a deep dive on the Dallas Mavericks. JC, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Nick? Doing pretty good. Let's get started with an overview of the Mavericks offseason. And when discussing the Mavericks offseason, the big name is Harrison Barnes. They brought him in on a four-year, $94 million max contract. How has he looked so far in Dallas? Barnes has actually looked incredible. As far as things go, he has been the largest free agent signing in the history of the team, that $94 million figure. Not the largest per year, but overall. And the team is three and a half points better by net rating with him on the court than when he sits. They're negative in both cases. So you've got a little bit of an interesting thing there in that the team is straight up bad. So it's hard to just separate out what Harrison Barnes is doing. But the bottom line is he's scoring. He's driving guys. He's trying new things that you didn't see him do in Golden State. He's working up and unders. He's trying reverses. He's got new hook shots. He's going through spin moves in the lane. The freedom to really try all these things out, especially with Nowitzki out all of the scoring load on Barnes' shoulders, I think is something that will really pay off down the line as he expands that to a pick. Yeah, he's averaging 21 points per game so far in their first 12 games. He's shooting 46% overall. Interesting that he's down to 30.5% from deep. That was his main offensive strength in Golden State, but he's just getting the ball in a lot of different areas that he wasn't going to get the ball in as a fourth option in Golden State. But just going back to the three-point shooting, he's only shot three threes per game despite shooting 18 shots a game. Now, that was sort of his main offensive role in Golden State. Do you think he's just going through a slow stretch to start the season, or are people just guarding much tighter on him because he's one of the few offensive options in Dallas at this point? Yeah, I think the big difference is that in Golden State, he was the fourth option. So defense is key in on Steph Curry, scramble to cover Clay, Draymond Green rolls down the lane, and Barnes is open on the backside while the weak side defense is occupied. He's wide open for a three. In Dallas, even getting him open for post-ups is a struggle because teams can key in on him and Matthews or him and whoever has the ball, and the rest of the team can't really punish them from outside. It's interesting to look at the way that Barnes has worked so far. The play sets that they're running for him are very similar to what they ran for a young Dirk Nowitzki. He's getting a lot of post-ups in the short corner. He's getting the ball right in the middle of the floor, just above the free throw line a number of times per game. And they're really letting him go to work and try to develop these different skills. It'll be interesting to see how much more space he has to work with, if Matthews can come back on, if Darren Williams comes back healthy, and if Dirk comes back healthy. Because those are the only three guys who are true plus shooters on this team. They could really open up the floor. So I guess the question I want to ask, and I actually feel like he kind of has deserved his contract so far, just because this is really his first season as more than a fourth option. He's already looking great, but there were a number of questions that came up after he signed that contract. Do you think he's been worth his max deal so far? I absolutely do. I was one of the few people who constantly banged the drum of, remember Barnes was the number one high school recruit. Remember Barnes was a lottery pick. Remember Barnes was a prospect ahead of guys like Kyrie Irving in his year. I think that he has come through and proven a lot of those things correct. He had a very small role in Golden State. So going forward, you can see him grow. You can see him try these new skills. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that he's probably the best defender on the team through this point of the season. Yeah, that is important too, especially for someone who's playing such a large role for them. Now, the biggest concern that I've seen with Barnes so far is he's only at one assist per game so far. He's not been able to create solid looks for other players. And so I guess the question on my end is, 
is that more of a function of not having good teammates around him who can make shots, or is he just being a bit of a black hole on offense? I would say it's, at the same time, a little bit of both, but also neither, and I'll explain that. So, Barnes is definitely focused on the rim, and he's focused on scoring. That has been his job. He hasn't passed a ton. But he also hasn't, like, hit a lot of guys who then missed open shots. The problem is, without shooters around them, Dallas is playing against a congested defense that's loaded up towards the ball every single possession almost every night. And so not only does Barnes not naturally have that vision, he also doesn't have a lot of room. There aren't a lot of passing lanes because there are arms and guys everywhere every time he touches the ball. The other interesting question for Barnes is he's done quite well, as you said, filling in old Dirk roles offensively. Now, does that mean that he's going to be best as a power forward moving forward, or is he going to spend time at the three? Because he's not rebounded at the level I think you would need for a starting power forward. Has he been playing more of the three than the four so far? It's probably about an even split so far. If I had to guess or put a number on, I don't have the stats right in front of me. But I think his future is just that. It's probably about an even split. Especially as long as Dirk Nowitzki's on this team. You need them to overlap some, because that's where you're going to have your best offensive lineups. But you also get a lot of juice out of moving Barnes to the four, where you can play small ball. And you get a lot of juice out of having Barnes defend fours. He can hold up just fine against most of the fours in the NBA, especially as other teams play. More shooters, less post-up threats. Barnes' versatility on that end is actually really valuable. So if he's going to continue to be a 40-minute-a-night player, it probably ought to be 20-25 to 25 at the 3 and 15-20 to 20 at 4. And I guess part of that will come from if Wesley Matthews ends up getting healthy and returning to more playable levels than he has been so far in his Dallas tenure, that probably would leave Barnes more time at the four, especially with Dirk out. But I mean, he can't play with Dirk as a four because Dirk as a five is just absolute death for any sort of defense (laughs) at this point in his career. Yeah, Dirk on the court at all is pretty much absolute death for a defense at this point in his career. You'll even see him make jokes in press conferences and on Twitter, but the biggest thing that's gone a little unnoticed from the early season is that the Dirk and Bogut pairing on defense was absolutely horrendous. So no matter what you do, I think when Dirk comes back, there'll be a lot of interesting questions about how to try and stagger his minutes, Bogut's minutes, as much as possible so that they are not on court. So I actually did want to move on to discussing Andrew Bogut, but it appears you aren't particularly rosy on how Bogut's been playing so far. Do you think he would work as a rim protector if he doesn't have to sort of cover more ground on the defensive end? Yeah, I did not mean to give that impression. I think Bogut's actually played a really strong role. He's looked excellent on defense. Of all the on-off numbers for the team, Bogut on the floor is when the team plays at its best on defense, and Bogut off the floor is when the team plays at its worst on defense. I want to say it's roughly a 17-point difference in the D rating. Yeah, 91 and a half with him, 108.7 without it. The problem, as I mentioned with him and Dirk, is that they both have kind of the same deficiencies. So when you put both of them together, it really allows the team to attack in the pick and roll. And they're both hang back guys. They both can't run over and play too much health defense. So you can hide one of them. And Bogut himself does a great job protecting the rim. But when Bogut has to protect the rim and also make up for Dirk's deficiencies, that's where you run in problems. Because he's not a laterally quick man. Bogut is in some ways sort of a reverse of Dirk in the all-defense, no-offense. <laughs> 
He's yet to make a free throw this season, which is unfortunate. He's shooting 41% from the floor, despite not taking threes. And he does at least do a good job on the offensive glass, and he's just a hair under 10 rebounds per game in a little under 26 minutes. So he's been helpful for them on the backboards too, but that's a problem when your two best big men just can't play together, even though seemingly they have opposite strengths and weaknesses. Yes. It's interesting because you look at Bogan and you say, oh, he's kind of like Tyson Chandler, right? He protects the rim, he plays defense, he rebounds, but the ways in which they go about doing those things are very different. And those differences are the key as to why the Chandler-Dirk pairing worked really well. And the Bogut-Dirk pairing, albeit in a very small sample size, just has it to this point. Bogut has this one, you know, lovely plus. People talk about his passing at Golden State. I think that has held up with Dallas. He has a number of nice backdoor passes. Carlisle feels confident running the ball through him in the post as kind of the orchestrator, almost like Joe Noah did when he was in Chicago and had his top 10 MVP finish that one year under Thibodeau. But beyond that, Bogut's kind of a non-factor on offense. Yeah, and I think in comparing him with Tyson Chandler, the main difference is Tyson is a freak athlete, and Andrew Bogut is not really much <laughs> an athlete at all at this point. I mean, that's not that's not fair. He's in the NBA. He's obviously very athletic for human being standards, but he's not, I mean, you already discussed this, he's not quick enough and Dirk's not quick enough for them to be effective defensively playing together. Now, one of the more interesting Dallas free agent signings to me was Seth Curry. He came in on a two-year, $6 million contract. He has already started four games for the Mavs, and he's currently third on the team in total minutes. Do you think he's going to continue to play this large of a role during the season? Or do you think once Darren Williams comes back and once Devin Harris comes back and eventually once J.J. Barea comes back, Curry's going to be sort of a lower rotation bench player? Well, therein lies the rub, doesn't it? All of those guys have been injured. All of them had questions about whether or not they would be injured. And that was part of the reason they signed Curry. I think they've played him a lot more than expected. I think he's held up pretty well. He looks all right on defense, actually. He does a decent job of guarding his yard, meaning he guards one yard to the left and to the right and manages to keep the guy in front of him long enough for help to arrive in many situations. He hasn't been the best point guard defender in the pick and roll situation, but he's been passable. And for a guy who should be probably a fourth guard in the rotation, he, I think, has performed admirably when called upon. For two years and $6 million, it's been an excellent signing. From And it looked that way from the moment they made it. I was shocked that the rest of the NBA decided to pass on him completely, especially the Kings. As a Kings fan, I was shocked that they passed on him as well. <laughs> Although, news did later come out that he had requested to be released from his contract in Sacramento, and Vladi decided to be a nice guy and follow through on his wishes, despite the fact that it very clearly hurt the Kings. But moving on... He's only shot 32% from three so far this season, which is a massive anomaly given the rest of his career, both in the NBA and in college, and also his stints in the D-League. He's just a much better shooter than that. Is this weak start from three, do you think it's 
more due to him being heavily guarded, or do you think he's just in a cold streak right now and that that's going to leap up shortly? Well, as with all things, it's probably a combination of the two. I would say that my read on the situation is he's taking more threes off the dribble than he typically does because he has to be the creator. Oftentimes when he's on the floor, there's nobody else who has the ball in their hands and makes great passes. That said, even when he is catching and shooting, he's covered more closely. He's one of the only shooting threats on the floor typically when he's out there. And so teams can shade an extra guy towards him. Teams can let that player not be as strong of a help defender because they can help off of other guys on the court. And it really does gum off the Mavericks offense. The one thing I have noticed consistently, no matter who is on the floor, is that teams can at the same time gum up the paint and prevent the shooters from getting open because there just aren't enough shooting threats on the floor. Speaking of shooting threats, let's talk about Jonathan Gibson for a bit. He is one of the biggest surprises, I think, of the past few months in the NBA. He was a high scorer in China. He's been all over, and the Mavs signed him. Did they sign him right after Summer League, I want to say? So Dallas gave him a training camp invite after Summer League, but then at the end of the preseason, they had to let him go to make room for Quincy AC. Following the rash of injuries to all of their guards, Quincy AC was cut, and Gibson was signed back again. And he's looked solid so far. At the time of this podcast, he'd only played in two games, but he'd shot 50% overall. He'd shot a little under 42% from deep. He's just a scorer. I mean, he scores from everywhere, and he's got a little bit of work to do in terms of his defense and assumably passing if Dallas is going to need to rely on him in a point guard role. Yes, I would say the best kind of comparison for him right now is, remember those point guards who used to back up Derrick Rose for years in Chicago? There's a different one each season. Oh, the Tom Thibodeau six foot and under point guard carnival? Yes, it is exactly the role that he's playing. He's a spark plug, he skits around the court, he can shoot the three, he can drive the paint, he doesn't pass a ton, his defense... You know, it's interesting. He has the tools to be a good defender, but the biggest problem he has right now is he fouls a ton. He needs to learn to play defense a little more with his feet and a little less with his hands. And part of what he's trying to do is, you know, this is his first real NBA opportunity. He's persevered. I mean, the guy played for seven or eight years in seven or eight different countries for more than seven or eight different teams just around the world, traveling all over the place to try and get this opportunity. He clearly is facing some pressure to make the most of it because it might be the last one. All right, let's move from the offseason into the regular season and look quickly at the big man rotation followed by the wing and guard rotation. But let's start with the bigs. They've had a bit of a hole there in that Dirk has been out for the majority of their games this year. They've given starts to Dwight Powell. And in general, they've played a lot of minutes for some interesting, shall we say, big men. What do you think their rotation is going to look like among those big guys, I guess, until Dirk comes back, but also after he returns? Yeah, I think the most interesting change is they have been able to give Barnes a ton of time at the four, which, as we mentioned earlier, is probably the best use of his talents, is a, a number of minutes at the four each night. The biggest change when Dirk comes back is that Barnes will probably lose some of those minutes. The other change that you'll likely see is Dwight Powell should be playing less minutes. Now, I say this, I'm a Stanford guy, I love Dwight Powell, he's an awesome guy. He has the worst net rating on the team at minus 14.4. He's playing 20 minutes a game, 
If Dirk's back, Barnes is healthy, Bogut's playing, Powell should probably be playing no more than 8 to 10 minutes a game. He's not a great finisher on offense. He's not a great rim protector. He's not a great shooter. He does a lot of these things well enough, maybe a C plus or a B, but he has nothing that he's like the best at on the team, which in the NBA, there's something to be said for having no skills that are bad, but that's really more of a wing skill set where you need no, no holes in your game. Dwight Powell has nothing that he excels at. If he can find a way to make that 15 to 18 foot jumper a weapon, or if he could find a way to really protect the rim well and not jump out of position as much as he does, he could be a much bigger part of the rotation, especially with the contract he got this year. Without that, you probably end up with Bogut playing 25 minutes a game. He's at 25.6 right now, which would be the most he's played in the last four years. Then you have Salah Mejri, probably gets 15 minutes a game, and you split the minutes at the four between Dirk and Barnes. Maybe Hammonds gets some minutes here and there as he develops throughout the year. He basically hasn't played it all yet. He's a rookie. He's trying to learn NBA defense. We'll see what Carlisle does with that. But I think that's probably the gist of the big man rotation. In Powell's defense, he does actually have the best defensive rating on the Mavs right now, which certainly surprised me looking at the numbers. He might be the best athlete on this Dallas team, especially given his size, but he has been shooting rather miserably so far to start the season. So if he's going to play major minutes, he's going to need to improve. You talked about his 15 to 18 footer. That would definitely help them. He's also been shooting a little over one three per game and shooting at 20%. So that's not that's not the right place to be for him. He's ex- he's experimenting with that three. I've noticed it coming from the corner every time. Do you remember when Serge Ibaka first started to move out to three-point range? Is it, is it a similar thing, just only taking the shots in the corner and seeing what he can do with them? So far, it's at that level. And some of them are even bail out. If I have the ball in the corner and there's one and a half seconds on the shot clock, I better put it up threes. I think he's got two of those already, which in only 12 games is a lot more than what you want your backup center slash foreman to be shooting from the three-point line. It also doesn't help that his best long-term position is probably power forward, just because I think he's a little bit too skinny to play at the five full-time. And if Barnes' best position going forward is at the four and Dirk's really only position going forward is at the four. There just isn't much room for him. Now, let's move on quickly to the wings and the guards. Someone we haven't discussed yet that I think is important to discuss, given that he's started more than half the games he's played in, Dorian Finney-Smith, undrafted rookie. He's only averaged a little under 15 minutes a game, but he has started six of them, and he's been... A solid defender with a shaky, shaky offensive output so far. Yeah, that's a pretty good description of Finney Smith. I would say it's a little misleading his minutes per game figure this early in the season because he saw action in a number of games early. And the games that he's started, which I want to say is about the last six or seven, he's getting a lot of minutes, probably 25 or more in those games. And just like you said, he's looked pretty good on defense. He is a very high-energy player. He gets after it on the boards, but he's not a huge guy, so he's not got an incredible rebounding percentage by any means. His defense is useful. I actually really would like to see 
a lineup of Finney Smith and Barnes and Devin Harris and Bogut and Wes Matthews because Finney Smith looks like what Justin Anderson was anointed to be and just hasn't been yet. Talking about the wings, Anderson was someone who really needed to step up this year and develop his game and looks more like he's taken a couple of steps backwards and one or two to the side just off the beaten path in a lot of ways. I guess my biggest question right now is what happened to Wes Matthews? I mean, last year was vaguely expected to be a down year for him, given that he was coming off that Achilles injury, and the fact that he even played at all last year, much less 78 games, was remarkable, but this is the point where he should be getting better, where he should be getting back, but he's shot even worse than he did last year, and last year he was at least still above average from three-point range, but this year he's cratered to... 30 percent is he just still ice cold i mean he's taking eight threes a game and making 30 percent of them does he still look hurt so i mentioned this a little bit with seth curry but it is a lot more pronounced with matthews almost none of his shots are catch and shoot open threes very very few of them almost none of them are in transition dallas is actually i want to say 30th in the league in transition points Yes, they are 30th in the league in transition points. They're also dead last in the percentage of their total points that come via the fast break, so it's not just a pace issue, although they do play at the 29th slowest pace in the league. And Matthews is taking a ton of step backs. He's taking a ton of bailouts at the end of shot clocks. He's taking a ton of post-ups because this team doesn't have enough threats for Rick Carlisle to run a true offense. And what he has to do instead is enter the ball to Matthews and Barnes in the post and have them try to make things happen. So there's a lot of short late clock situations. There's a lot of off the dribble threes. There's a lot of step backs. And Matthews is taking probably the highest percentage of contested shots as a proportion of his overall shooting as any point in his career by a significant margin. Before we move on to talking about your article this week for Hashtag Basketball, I just want to talk about Darren Williams really quickly because he's been injured for the last stretch of games. But he did play a little bit at the start of the year, and he shot really well from behind the arc and really poorly from inside the arc. His three-point percentage is only .01 worse than his field goal percentage, shooting 38.7 from three, 39.7 from the floor. And he hasn't been his turnover to assist ratio is just slightly over two, which I guess is actually better than I thought it would be. He's just, he's looked a step slow in the games he's played so far this year. Was he playing hurt or is this just who he is now? I think to some extent it is who he is. Darren Williams, in my opinion, was incredibly effective while he was playing. You're not wrong though when you say he looked a step slow. I think that's dead on accurate. Darren Williams is no longer the pick-and-roll maestro that you saw in Utah. He is a dead-eye shooting threat. He is a post-up threat. It's actually surprising when you think about it. Dallas gets so much of their offense via the post this year, and it kind of just happened. You didn't really see it coming. But when you have their team fully healthy and ready to start, they will batter you in the post. This is a team that, if they're going to play effectively and win, needs to slow the game down, draw out the shot clock, punch it down low repeatedly to Williams in a mismatch, to Matthews in a mismatch, to Barnes in a mismatch, to Dirk down low. Once this team gets everybody back healthy, it'll be really interesting to see if they can turn the 2004, 2000, 2001 early 
parts of the decade smash mouth basketball style and get some wins in that way, which you kind of saw them do at the end of the year last year when they went on their run to make the playoffs. Oddly enough, if you talk about the Dallas starting lineup when fully healthy, their worst post-up player might actually be their center. Yeah, it's probably Bogut. Although it's interesting, too, with Bogut, man, the number of times that he has thrown up a hook shot with under four seconds on the shot clock astounds me. The announcer, actually, Derek Harper, made it a point to mention when they were playing Orlando that they're doing Bogut a disservice by only letting him post up with six or less seconds left on the shot clock. That's not a whole lot of time to go to work for a guy whose best skill is attempting to draw a double and then finding the open man. With that few seconds on the shot clock, if you get doubled, you kind of just have to throw it up. There's not enough time to do anything else. And the sad part for Bogut is that early in his career, before his gruesome broken elbow, he was actually a really good offensive center. He was talked about more as an offensive center than a defensive center when he came to the league. The fact that he's been able to change his game to account for that elbow injury has really been remarkable. But let's move on to your wonderfully optimistic piece about the youth movement, or lack thereof, in... (laughs) Dallas. So we talked about Dorian Finney-Smith earlier. So I want to start by talking about Justin Anderson, who really is the closest thing the Mavs have to a young player with upside. Although I guess Harrison Barnes is still young enough to vaguely count in that category. But Anderson, you talked about this already, has not looked anywhere near as good as he did last year in the early part of the season. Yes. To give a shout out to a prior hashtag article, we wrote something at the end of last season about what Anderson needed to do to take the next step. And it involved his handle, it involved three-point shooting, it involved taking advantage of his athletic gifts to improve as a defender, where last year he was actually a pretty solid defender, especially for a rookie on the wing tasked with guys like Kawhi Leonard night in and night out. This year... Man, I'm really at a loss for words with what's happened to him. The only positive I've seen from Justin Anderson so far is that he is definitely not afraid to shoot, and that athleticism is still there. He gets offensive rebounds and plays with more energy than anybody else on the team. I would say, aside from, you know, you mentioned Powell with his height, Anderson is probably the biggest athlete on the team by a significant margin outside of Powell. The one thing that stands out to me most about Anderson is he's taken almost three threes a game, and he's hit 17.6% of them. That is horrifying. Yeah, helped especially by that 0 for 11 shooting performance against the Knicks, when the Mavericks really could have used some three-point offense from the young gun on the wing. Speaking of young gun on the wing, the other 23-year-old wingman for the Mavs is Dorian Finney-Smith, who we talked about a bit earlier, his contributions look like they're just going to be on the defensive end, especially during his rookie season. I mean, have you seen much in his offensive game that looks like it'll be exploitable this early in his career? This early? Probably not. He does have a pretty solid cutting instinct, actually. He reminds me of Tony Allen over the last few years in Memphis, where when he does get ignored, or when his man does turn his head, He darts along the baseline and goes up and flushes it or gets hit for the foul or finishes with an up and under. So as far as finishing at the rim, I've been pleasantly surprised. He's only shooting 23.5% from three, I believe. And most of those threes are of the open variety because teams don't pay him a whole lot of respect out there. Overall, I'd say Smith and Anderson together kind of provide, not to give away the gist of the article or anything, but 
they're the two youngest guys on the team. They're already 23 years old. At a certain point, you become who you are in the NBA. Constantly, the Mavs are referenced as this team full of youth, and oh, look at how young the Mavs are this year. And yeah, they're younger than the Mavs usually are, but they're not particularly close to the youngest team in the NBA. The interesting thing about Finney Smith is his three-point shooting was very erratic in, <laughs> in college, but he did make 43% of his threes in his junior season. So it's not like he's a Kawhi Leonard type or a Justice Winslow that comes into the league with a vaguely broken jump shot that needs to be repaired. He has made them in the past. He's just not looked good from there so far this year. Yeah, and it's early still. And he's inexperienced, and the NBA line is farther out than the line in college, and that takes some adjusting. It takes some getting used to. When I was working with some of our players at Stanford last year, we actually put the guys who were potentially going to the draft or going professional through shooting sessions with the NBA line drawn on the floor. And the shooting percentages dipped noticeably. It was actually really interesting to watch guys who were electric shooters just step back in shoot-arounds and just going through drills and what the difference is. That extra couple feet make a huge difference to a player's effectiveness. And it'll just take some time for him to go through NBA weight training, for him to get used to where he's shooting it from, and for him to kind of figure out the geometry of the floor. It is good to note that he did make those threes in college, though, because even though there is the difference in the line, that's also where he's used to shooting them from. It's not just that it's a couple of feet farther out to the NBA line, but I'm sure he's taken a lot more practice threes from the college line than he has from the <laughs> NBA line. Yeah, it's definitely a bright spot to think about, hey, you know, his shooting could definitely come around, and there's a lot of reason to believe that it will. Let's just talk quickly about Nicholas Bersino. He's played very few minutes so far, slightly more than AJ Hammonds, who we went over earlier. But Bersino has at least shot well, very well from three, although granted on a very small sample size. Is the rest of his game good enough to keep him on the floor just to keep bombing from three-point range? Yeah, not to go for too lazy of a comparison since he's also Argentinian, but he has a similar profile to Manu Ginobili in that maybe less of a slasher, more of a shooter, but definitely an offensive-focused player. Uh, if Brusino manages to stick in the NBA longer and develop some of those wily instincts that old man Manu has, then maybe he can sneak for steals, he can play backside defense, he can be a good helper, he can at least be not too large of a negative on defense, so that, as you say, he can stay on the floor and bomb away from three, which, you know, there is a small sample size in the season, but in the preseason, he also had the highest shooting percentage on the team. He definitely looks like a guy who can shoot the lights out of the ball. And the other good thing to note with Brusino is that he's also still only 23. He's not one of those older pros like, say, Marjanovic or Kuzminskis this season who come into the league at 27 or 28. He's at least got some development years left in him. Yeah, or second-year Maverick Salah Mejri at age 30. <laughs> yeah, although when you're seven foot two and can actually stand, you will always have value in the NBA. Yeah, I think I read once that roughly 55 or 60% of all Americans more than 7 feet tall play in the NBA. Yeah, I I saw a similar thing. It was like 15, 16, but I'm sure the difference between 7 foot and 7 two is not negligible. I mean, especially since there are a lot of these guys who say they're 7 feet tall, and maybe if you actually, you know, look at their pre-draft measurements or 
six nine and a half, but they've got really big shoes that make them seven feet tall. <laughs> yeah, that's an NBA phenomenon for a whole other podcast. And while we're talking about the Mavericks, you can't talk about people who overlist their height in the NBA without at least mentioning J.J. Barea. The fact that <laughs> J.J. Barea is listed at six feet tall gives me a lot of hope at someone who's 5'9", that, you know, hey, maybe if I play my cards right, I can be six foot two in the future. So let's talk about some of the early games for Dallas this season. I want to start on a positive note by going over their two wins so far against the Bucks and the Lakers. Both the Bucks and the Lakers have looked a lot better to start the season than people expected them to, and those were actually solid wins for, for Dallas. Yeah, they absolutely were. I think the biggest thing that you saw in those games for Dallas is the pace really messed with the Lakers, and I think to some extent it messed with the Bucks as well. Those are two teams that, you know, with D'Angelo Russell, with Julius Randle, with Giannis, with Jabari Parker... They like to get out and run. They like to get their baskets in the open court when they can. Dallas really slowed them down. I want to say that both of those teams had their lowest fast break and transition point outputs in the games against Dallas, as opposed to the rest of the games that they've played this season. Yeah, Milwaukee's pace overall is 96.5, which is about middle of the NBA, but that game against Dallas, their pace was right about 90, and they also just shot miserably and that's well i mean that's something useful for dallas though that they managed to hold them to 20 percent from deep on 29 attempts that really messed with the offense and granted it's kind of easy to say mess with the offense in an overtime game where a team only scores 75 points but that can be a useful move for dallas going forward if they can take these teams that like to run and like to get out and transition and slow it down such they can't be as effective. And one of the best things that Dallas had going for them in that Milwaukee game is Rick Carlisle's matchup zone, where against a team that doesn't have a whole lot of outside shooting, outside of, say, Toledovich over on the Bucks, you can really stick a guy over there, you can play that matchup zone, you can let some wing threes come open, and Giannis isn't exactly a great three-point shooter, he's the guy with the ball in his hands a lot, you really pack the paint against that team and force them to try and beat you from outside. And 29 threes, shooting only 20%, that's a way to win a ball game. And the Lakers game was very different in that the Lakers took 26 threes, made 10 of them, so that's 38.5%. And the pace was actually the same as it was in the Bucks game, 90.2, but both teams scored a lot better <laughs> in the in the game between the Mavs and the Lakers than the Mavs-Bucks game. Now, part of that is that the Mavs shot really well. They shot just under 53% overall and 43.5% from three. But was that being able to grind out half-court possessions and just score on them effectively? I think it is the Lakers' youth and inexperience showing in that when you have a game where Rick Carlisle is your coach, where you're running his offense, where you're letting Harrison Barnes take advantage of young guys at will, you end up with a lot more open shots than they have against many other teams. I would actually look out for a similar effect against maybe Minnesota or Philadelphia, where you have teams that are very young and haven't had a whole lot of time with their new coaches, for instance with Thibodeau in Minnesota, where guys are going to end up out of position more, where guys are going to lose track of their opposing player more, and that's going to lead to a few more open shots. 
And, you know, Wes Matthews, I think he's actually a pretty good shooter this year. He is just facing a ton of contested shots, and that's dragging his percentage down. When he's more open, he knocks them down. I feel mean even bringing this up, but we do have to talk about the game against the Grizzlies where Dallas scored 64 points. <laughs> I didn't actually watch that game, but was that just the epitome of the Dirkless Dallas team trying desperately to find ways to score and just not succeeding? Yeah, that about sums it up. As we get into these kind of worse games, I want to read off a few stats for you just to show you how bad this offense is. So if you don't mind, I'm going to list them off here. Dallas has an effective field goal percentage of 45.7, dead last in the league. Dallas gets 257 attempts at the rim so far. That is last in the league by nearly 40 attempts, a greater margin than the difference between first and eighth place in the league. Their shooting percentage at the rim, 54%, 27th in the league. They're dead last in fast break and transition points as we discussed. They're 29th in second chance points. They're 28th in the percentage of their points they get in the paint. They're dead last in the total points in the paint. They're 27th in percentage of shots that are assisted. They're dead last in assists. They're dead last in rebounds. They play at the 29th pace. I mean, what more do you want me to say? This team does not do well on offense. Their .217 free throw rate is last in the league by a mile. They don't get inside. And when you watch them play, and this was especially evident in that Memphis game you mentioned, what you'll notice is they actually do an okay job of getting in the paint and of getting inside. The problem is, once they're there, nobody's a threat to finish the play with a bucket. And so teams don't have to collapse. Teams don't have to threaten the integrity of their defense. And those kickouts go to shooters that, if Kevin Durant was the guy in the paint making the kickout, the players who are closing out on the shooter are two or three steps away. When J.J. Barea or Jonathan Gibson is making that kick out, or Wes Matthews is passing to Seth Curry, what actually happens is the defender only has to close out one foot away from a normal distance. And so there's no ability for the Mavericks to get that open jump shot that you see in a lot of other offenses when you get in the paint. If Dallas is really going to solve this problem, what they have to do is finish when they get inside. They also are last in points per game and offensive rating. Oh yeah, they are they are last in a lot of things. I my list was long. I tried not to bore you with it. <laughs> so you also wanted to talk about the back to back they played against the Rockets, which came after a crushing overtime loss to the Pacers to start the season, which was by far their best offensive performance. But those losses against Houston were a lot closer than some of their other games have been. What did you see in those games that you think are going to be important points for this team moving forward. Well, I would say it's great of you to include the Pacers in that as well, actually. Those are three straight games where Dallas easily could have won all three. They were still mostly healthy. You saw some help in the offense. There was lots of space on the floor. Darren Williams was lighting it up. Dirk wasn't even playing at his best, but the gravity that he has when he's on the floor was opening things up for everybody. I think the biggest takeaways from those games, it's a little late. You've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater at this point to make the playoffs. But if Dallas had managed to pull out some of those close games, if Dallas had managed to pull out the game against Boston, and they were sitting at a game or two under 500 instead of eight games under, then those games would be the sign that said, hey, this is a team that's going to be dangerous when they come back healthy. Now, even if this team comes back healthy, they really have no shot to make the playoffs. You asked me before we were talking about, you know, 
What are the chances that they're going to go ahead and make the playoffs? How's it going to look? The chances are very, yeah, very and low. I think the biggest issue for them is their defense has not been good enough to offset their offense, which is a bit rough to say because they're actually 7th in opponent points per game and 8th in defensive rating. So it's not just a byproduct of their 29th in the league pace, but it's just so tough to start the season with this kind of 2-10 and 10 record. And it was a similar thing for the Pelicans last year when they started 0-11 and, and the rest of their games, they were pretty close to 500. But if you just start out in that much of a hole, especially in the Western Conference, it's so hard to dig your way out. Yeah, to put a number on it, including tonight's game, their next five are San Antonio, the Clippers, the Cavs, the Pelicans, and San Antonio again. I'd say they'll be lucky to go 1-4 and four and get that win at home against New Orleans. If that's what this turns out to be, they'll come out of the stretch at 3-14. and 14. And even if they were going to finish at 500, which might nab them the 8th seed in the West, they'd have to win at 60% pace, which is more than a 50-win pace for the rest of the season. And very few people, I think, would have said this was a 50-win team at the start of the year. Even if everybody came back healthy tomorrow, it's probably not a 50-win team for the rest of the year either. Our 538 projections have them at 30 and 52, and even that might be a little rosy, given the health problems and the intelligence of a guy like Mark Cuban, who might say, hey, Dirk, take your time, make sure you're healthy, let's work on these inexperienced players and see what we have for next year. And on the plus side, Dallas does at least have their first-round draft pick this year. They finally do. <laughs> on the other plus side, here, this is a fun stat for you. They lead the league in charges drawn. So that's some great defensive stats right there. Gotta hang your hat on something, I suppose. Well, hey, if you're not quick enough to actually contest people, you might as well at least just sort of jump in front of them and fall over. Whatever works for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do what you can. All right, anything else you want to go over before we wrap up? I think that's probably about it for me. I will say watch out for Jonathan Gibson. His story is underrated in the perseverance that it takes to do what he's done. So if nothing else happens this year, I'll appreciate having seen him do what he's done in these two games and as the time goes on. All right. Well, that wraps things up for us. You can follow JC on Twitter at the JC Fisher. That's T-H-E-J-C-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. You can follow me on Twitter at NBA underscore Johnson, NBA underscore J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can also follow the hashtag basketball website on Twitter at hash basketball, H-A-S-H-B-A-S-K-E-T-B-A-L-L. They do a great job of keeping up to date with rosters for the day and have a lot of great fantasy advice. You can also Check out the website, hashtag basketball.com. JC and I each write there fairly regularly. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen.